Let's stand together tonight as we reverence the reading of God's Word. I'm going to be reading out of Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, verse 24. An autobiographical passage by the Apostle Paul where he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. May God bless the reading of his word tonight. It's my prayer. You may be seated. For the next few weeks, our Sunday night services and messages will be developed around thoughts and theology of one of America's most renowned hymns, Amazing Grace. Uh, it was in 1772 uh, when Isaac Newton uh, penned the words that were at the time a poem. We know that it was first read in public for his sermon on January the 1st, 1773. So we know that it was being composed at about this time of the year, uh, 250 years ago. Uh, it is a tribute to the power of this song that it has lasted that long. And it, uh, of course, quickly moved in America. I learned as I studied the history of the song that uh, one of the things that made it uh, such a big deal in America uh, was the shape note singing movement. And you have to be old to know what those shape notes mean in a hymnal. Some of us do. Uh, and even though I know them, I can't do that do, fa, sol, la, si, ne, or whatever that was that they did as they, as they went through. And each one of those shake notes represented uh, one of those do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. And uh, they learned to sing that way. And in a place where people could not read music then, they not only learned how to sing, but they learned how to sing parts. And that harmonious music then, congregational singing, was a huge deal in the frontiers. And one of the great songs that came out of that time was, of course, Amazing Grace. It uh, took America by storm, the pioneer days. And from then on, and even until today, we still sing it and are still touched by it. Uh, Tonight, we're going to be building our thoughts around the second stanza of this great song, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. We know from Isaac Newton's testimony that his conversion was brought about by a particularly violent storm at sea, where he was convinced, along with everyone else on board the ship, Uh, that they were going to die. Already troubled by a life of terrible sin and debauchery, uh, Newton cried out to God for mercy to save him. And for the rest of his life, he pointed back to that as his conversion experience. Whatever happened to him was real. I would like to be able to tell you tonight that he had an immediate transformation, that he got off the ship and became a completely different person. It didn't work that way. Uh, He was in the slave trade. He continued on for a while. Uh, The only thing we know for sure that he really cleaned up in a hurry was his vocabulary. He had a renowned reputation for being a terrible cusser. And uh, you've heard about somebody who could cuss so bad that make a sailor blush. Well, uh, that was Newton. He, uh, He taught them all some new words. He changed his vocabulary very quickly. 
But a lot of the other things he was doing uh, continued on. But he would go on by the age of 30. He had done a lot of living. But he married. He settled down. He got off the, the ship. He began to study theology. And he ultimately uh, became a pastor or vicar in a Church of England church uh, where he was pretty controversial because he had strongly evangelistic views. Uh, Isaac Newton. Now, in this case, uh, we could say then it was a storm probably that Newton was talking about when he said it was grace that taught my heart to fear. Uh, But regardless, though his story is amazing, it's still just a story. Though it's a great testimony, it's still just a testimony. And what we look for then in something like this is biblical truth, as is always. And though it's a, a great place to start and a great way to start, what an incredible line. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." It is biblical truth that matters, and this is indeed biblical truth. And we see it play out in this story. Another testimony, by the way, but this one... Uh, one that we know was brought about by the Holy Spirit, one that we know was inspired to be written down by the Holy Spirit in the testimony of the Apostle Paul as he was inspired to write of his struggle with the power of sin and with his deliverance from the power of sin. And that will serve as our outline for our thoughts tonight out of Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8 primarily, although we'll bring in, as always, a few other supporting passages as we discuss the struggle that we have with sin. Uh, We acknowledge, of course, that some struggles are worse than others. (laughs) Did you hear about the man who got addicted to the hokey pokey? Yeah, he turned himself around, so yeah. That wasn't very good, but I couldn't resist. I, I just, he turned himself around. And that's what it's all about, you know. Well, it, it wasn't hard, I guess, to quit the hokey pokey. But uh, you and I both know uh, that the struggle with sin is really not something to laugh about. It's very real. And Paul describes in that time when grace taught his heart to fear. And then grace, his fear relieved. If you're saved tonight, that is your testimony too. Grace taught your heart to fear. And grace took that fear away. We'll see this play out in Romans chapter 7. We see it begin in verse 4 then. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law, to the body of Christ, that you may be married to another. To him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit unto death. But now we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Now, though this is a testimonial passage, it is also an argumentative passage. It doesn't mean that Paul is fighting with anybody. It is he is presenting and building, crafting an argument, much like a logical presentation where you make a case, where you build a case for a particular point. You develop an argument. And this argument uh, was based on a simple premise out of the Old Testament law. 
And he introduced that in the first three verses where he said that, you know, that uh, under the law, a woman was bound unto her husband for as long as her husband lived. So that if she divorced her husband or left her husband and was married to another, uh, then this woman would be known as an adulteress. And that was a simple statement of fact. Uh, The law of Moses did provide for divorce, but only from the man's side. A man could divorce his wife for any cause. But a woman had no such recourse. A woman could not divorce her husband. She could be divorced, and then another man might marry her, and and that was okay in their way of thinking, although Jesus dropped a pretty big bomb on that in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, But uh, this was a simple statement of fact. A woman was bound to her husband by the law as long as her husband lived. But if her husband died, Then she was freed from that law. She was no longer under any obligation, and she then was able to marry another if she so so chose and could find someone uh, who would marry her. That was fine. Everything was good. And so Paul then builds on that in our text, in this passage. He said, you've become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another. Oh. There's almost kind of a curve in this statement because the analogy doesn't completely fit up exactly. Uh, We were married to the law, that much we could see. But what Paul is telling us is that the law died with Christ. When Christ died, uh, what died was the power and the authority of the law. When he died, he took the full penalty of the law And the Bible says that he took it out of the way then and nailed it to his cross. So that when Christ died, then that power of the law was broken. And because we are in Christ and because Christ lives in us, that glorious doctrine of union with Christ, now we have been joined to him who was raised from the dead because of his death, burial, and resurrection. So we've been delivered from the power of the law, and we have been united to another, and that is none other than Jesus Christ, so that we can, in verse 6, serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. He goes back then and discusses what it was like before that happened, what it was like to live under the power of the law, and how that the law aroused sinful passions or desires rather than alleviated them. I've often illustrated that with a simple sign that says wet paint. I don't know what it is in me. Maybe nobody else has this problem, but when I see that sign that says wet paint, I want to touch it and see. I'm not sure what it is, but there's just something about it. Uh, And so the, the law has that something in us. It's not the law's fault. And that's what he says in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived And I died. Now, obviously, Paul did not die physically during the time that he is describing this passage. The death that he describes is some other kind of death. And what it talks about is that he came under the condemnation of the law. And he understood it. 
You see, the law said, the soul that sinneth it shall die. He that despised Moses' law did what? Died without mercy under two or three witnesses. And so there was a time when he was alive, when he felt like that he was living righteously. And uh, as touching the law, he was blameless. But then one of those commandments, the very last one, by the way, of the Ten Commandments, rose up in his life. And it's this one, thou shalt not covet. The word covet, you see, means to have an improper or sinful desire. So that it's not just a sin to do something. It's a sin to want to. It's a sin to think about sinning or to have the desire to sin. It's perhaps most famously illustrated by what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount again, Matthew 5, 27. You've heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And so this passage very clearly tells us that not only is the practice of adultery sinful, but thinking about it is sinful too. And Paul says then in verse 8, when he understood the truth of this, he found himself going deeper and deeper into what he was thinking about doing all manner, he says, of evil desire. So that just a desire, a wrong desire, could get implanted in his head. And it grew and developed and it grew and it grew and it grew. And he was powerless before it. We don't know what all he may have struggled with. In this passage, Paul did not identify any particular sin other than the sin of covetousness, something he was thinking about doing that was improper, that grew and grew. But we know from his history about one thing that he struggled with greatly. Something that he thought about. Something that grew and grew and grew. Something that was wrong. But it became consuming to him. More and more powerful. What was it? It was his anger. His rage. His fury. Against his Jewish brothers and sisters. Who were believing on Jesus Christ. He talks about it in Acts 26 and 10, which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, many, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, put to death, I gave my voice against them. He was the prosecutor. I punished them oft, often, in every synagogue. Compel them to blaspheme. Strong implication of torture. And being exceedingly mad against them. Exceedingly mad. I persecuted them even unto strange cities. Paul had a bloodlust against those who were called Christians. It was growing. It was compelling. 
We have no idea how many Christians died under his hand or at his direction. And it no doubt compelled him to say things like this. 1 Timothy 1.15 This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Galatians 1.13 For you have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. Paul may have struggled with other evil desires and probably did, but his desire to kill Christians and destroy churches is well documented. The evil desire didn't stop when he had killed Stephen or had it done. It was inflamed so that it grew stronger and stronger and stronger and raged out of control. You see, this is what Paul is describing. I had, I had an improper desire, and it worked in me all manner of evil desire. It took him further than he would have ever imagined. This is what blew up in his debate in Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. Acts 6 and 10 says of this, of Stephen, and they were not able to resist his wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And then they secretly induced men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. And before this testimony was over, Stephen would lay dead, beaten to death with rocks. And the man who was responsible, the rabbi who was the leader of the synagogue of the Libertines in Jerusalem, yeah, that was none other than Saul of Tarsus. But you notice what the Bible says. They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Here was Stephen, a deacon of all things, who was taking on this young rabbi, brilliant, steeped in Judaism, a Pharisee, and roundly defeated him. In this public debate. But it didn't stop. Paul was determined. And he kept going. What was behind the rage and the fury? You see that's an interesting kind of thing. Why Paul picked out Jewish Christians. After all there were a couple of other parties. Paul was a Pharisee. But uh, there were also the Sadducees. Big heretics by the way. They denied the resurrection. You do remember the Sadducees, don't you? Uh, they denied the authority of Scripture. They uh, lived a very liberal lifestyle. They were everything that the Pharisees weren't. And then there were the Herodians. They were in league with the Romans. And they had their own uh, political views of what it meant to be Jewish. And they were just as heretical, maybe even more so, than the Sadducees were. But Paul wasn't out hunting Sadducees down, throwing them in jail. He wasn't going after them. as no, none of this kind of animosity toward them. Just Christians. It's just Christians. It was a problem. He couldn't win in that debate with Stephen. He could not res- resist his wisdom. He could not resist the power of the Holy Spirit. And you do remember what Jesus said to him. 
in Acts chapter 9. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Something was goading Paul. He was kicking against it. And all that fury and all that rage was fueled by what was goading him. His pride. His determination to always be right. and To always win. That's what was fueling all this. But that one word, that one sentence rather, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, that changed it all. It changed everything. So he, trembling and astonished, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. Can you imagine? Killer of Christians, hater of Christians, hater of Jesus Christ. Now with the living encounter with the resurrected Jesus. It would never be the same. And he falls there trembling and astonished. Trembling that he now faced the one he persecuted. Astonished that he wasn't struck dead on the spot and sent straight to hell. Like some of those people in the Old Testament that withstood Moses. It would not have been a surprise to him if the ground would have just opened up and took him straight to hell on the spot. Trembling and astonished. But it didn't end Paul's struggle with the determination to be right with the determination to argue things through and to make sure that things always went the way that he thought it should be. It did not stop that struggle. We could spring forward long after he's been saved and serving. He's partnered up with what we would arguably call his best friend. The man who stood up for him. When nobody else would talk to him. When the, uh, when the elders at Jerusalem wouldn't even let him in the church door. Who was it that went to bat for him? He has a guy named Barnabas. Son of consolation. Son of encouragement. That great encourager. Barnabas. His best friend. Who went to bat for him. Stood up for him. It was Barnabas then who went on that missionary journey with him. Barnabas brought his nephew along, Mark. Mark, you know, Mark was just not mature enough. He he just said, man, I I didn't sign up for this. I want to go home. Maybe he's homesick. I don't know. But he left. Do you remember how the story plays out? How that argument broke out between Paul and Barnabas. And Paul was determined He was willing to give up his best friend, his ministry companion, Barnabas. Couldn't find a compromise. No, no, he's not going. He left us once. He'll leave us again. You know, Paul was wrong about John Mark. You do know that, don't you? 
How do you know that? He admitted it. Uh, He wrote Timothy, bring Mark. (laughs) Bring Mark, for he's profitable to me for the ministry. You see, I'm, I'm I'm not dogging on Paul tonight. Don't you think I am? I'm not. I'm telling you that we know that there was something that he struggled with. He told us what it was. It was that evil desire. It was uh, thinking things that were wrong, wrong thinking. And it got a hold of him and it grew. It was a, a, a fueled by resentment because his pride was hurt. And it created bad behavior in him. He just, it just, and he struggled with that. We know even after he was saved, he still struggled. It kind of makes this biographical passage in Romans chapter 7 stand out a little bit for us. Uh, No, Paul didn't tell us exactly what it was that he struggled with. It's probably a good reason for that. Same reason the Holy Spirit didn't tell us what his thorn in the flesh was. We read that thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. And you know what we do? We project our thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan that troubles us. And we know, well, that could be it. We read Romans chapter 7, and we project our struggle with sin. Whatever it is, and we all have one. The writer of the book of Hebrews said, Let us lay aside every weight in the sin that doth so easily beset us. We've all got something we struggle with, maybe several somethings. I don't know tonight what it is that you struggle with. But the law of God still operates as it always did to show us our sin. As Paul said, I would not have known sin were it not for the law. It may be pride. It may be taking God's name in vain. That was one of them. A lot of people struggle with that. It may be lying. It might be lust. Who knows? You know. God knows. We all know. It is the deceitfulness of sin that takes us down our very own road to Damascus, full of sin and not able to see it. That's the struggle. A struggle that ends when grace teaches our heart to fear. As the grace of God that brings salvation appears to all men and teaching us, teaches us, To deny ungodliness and worldly lust. You see, it's grace that works through the law. As the law was always given to do what the law did then and what it still does today. Convince us of our sin. And once grace then has taught our heart to fear, it is grace that our fear can relieve. The deliverance. Verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and of death. Heretofore, in the book of Romans, the Holy Spirit was mentioned one time, and that was in the preamble in Romans chapter 1. But in Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is mentioned again and again and again and again and again. As it speaks to us of how the Spirit of God works in us to 
relieve that fear. And of course, the first way that the Spirit of God works to relieve that fear is through salvation. As we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we hear the great truth of the gospel. Here is a holy God. Here is a sinful rich. And yet God, by his grace, shows me that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that. I call on him to have mercy upon me, God, because I'm a sinner. And because of Jesus Christ, be my savior. And he does. He did. It's an amazing truth. It can be your amazing truth tonight. Maybe you've never called upon the name of the Lord to receive that grace. And that grace is promised only to those who receive him, that grace that saves us. John chapter 1, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to those that believe on his name. Believe on Jesus' name is to trust in him and his sacrifice for us. This is the way then that grace teaches our heart to fear and grace our fears relieve. Did that happen for the apostle Paul? Sure did. What did he say? Who are you, Lord? (laughs) Who are you, Lord? When you get home tonight, just uh, let those simple expressions, those simple words just roam around in your head for a little while. He might not have known who he was, but he certainly knew what he was. Who are you, Lord? Who are you? I am Jesus, whom you persecute. Yeah. Our salvation. Grace then teaches our heart to fear and grace our Fear is relieved because we're saved, but also because of the truth of sanctification. Sanctification does not refer to a state of sinless perfection. That's not possible in this life. But Paul describes sanctification in Romans chapter 7. We might not think about it. We might not realize that's what we're looking at, but it is. Where does sanctification begin? With a simple declaration, O wretched man that I am. That is a confession that agrees with the truth of Scripture. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. In this same passage, Paul would say, For I know that is in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. For the desire is present with me. I found that in my flesh. I want to do what is right. I want to please God. I want to follow the law. But the ability to do what I want to do, he said, I can't find. So then I know that where the law of God is in me, yes it is, I also see something else. There's a law of flesh that struggles in my members so that I can't do, he says, the things that I want to do. The things that I want to do, he says, I don't do. What do I want to do? It's his own testimony. I want to please God. I want to do what God told me to do. I want to be a person who follows God's law, who lives by his rule and his teachings. I want to live in a way that pleases God. I want to do what is right and good and just and holy. But the things I want to do, he said, I don't always do. I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, which are the things that displease God, the opposite of everything I just said, he said, the things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. It would be a lot easier for us in this passage if we could look at this and say, well, you know, Paul was 
really saying what I used to be, what I used to do, but that's not what he's saying. This is still going on. There's still a struggle. He's saved. Oh, yes, he is. He's an apostle, mightily used of God, but the struggle's real. You say, what does that have to do with sanctification? Because sanctification, listen to me, folk, sanctification is all about the struggle. It is all about the struggle. We're not always going to win. Sometimes we're going to lose. But when we lose, we know we've lost. When we lose, we know we've failed. And as long as we're in the struggle, as long as we're in the battle, as long as we're still trying to do what is right, even though we're falling short of that, that is how sanctification occurs. As long as we're in this world, as long as we're in this flesh, we're going to struggle. Sometimes we're going to fail. I don't mean to be fatalistic to you. I don't mean to rust your bu- bust your bubble tonight. I'm just going to tell you. Sanctification is not about sinless perfection. But it is about a seeking after righteousness and a living out of our salvation. I want to ask you a question tonight I've pondered a lot of times. Would you want to go to church with a bunch of sinless people? Don't answer that question loud. (laughs) Would I want to pastor a bunch of sinless people? We might not have much of a witness or testimony in the world. If we didn't know what it was like to struggle, if we didn't know what it was like to suffer, if we didn't know what it was like to experience failure, and if we didn't know the joy, listen, of sins forgiven, of the power of repentance, I have to tell you tonight that I long for the time When I won't have to begin every prayer by saying, God, forgive me for where I failed to do what I should have done. God, forgive me for the things that I have done that I shouldn't have done. There will come a day. There will come a time. That time is not now. Sanctification, you see, is about living out our salvation and putting that on display before a watching world. A message then, not of how... That salvation makes us sinless. But how that salvation puts Christ in us. And while we are judicially justified. That is we've been declared not guilty in the sight of God. We still are seeking after. The same Paul would say. It's not as though I had already attained. But I seek after. So grace teaches my heart to fear. And then grace, my fears relieved by our salvation, by our sanctification as we stay in the struggle. You say, how does that take our fear away? Let me tell you something tonight real quick. Um, Lost people really don't experience this struggle. They don't. If you feel that struggle going on, that's proof positive that you're a saved, blood-bought, born-again child of God. Which brings us to the last way that our fears are relieved through our security, our eternal security. Verse 38, Romans chapter 8. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
So after Romans chapter 7, we get Romans chapter 8. And Romans chapter 8 begins with, there is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And it ends up then with no separation. (laughs) What can separate us? From the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And between those glorious two bookends are packed some of the greatest biblical truth can be found anywhere. Romans chapter 8. Incredible, incredible discussion of who we are and what we have in Christ and what the Spirit is accomplishing in all our lives right now. Our security. Neither death nor life. That pretty well covers it. Nothing we're going to face in death, nothing we're going to face in life. But just in case we might still wonder, well, what about angels? No, not angels. What about the principalities and powers he warns us about? No, they can't take our salvation away. What about things present? What's happening in my life right now? No. What about what's to come? Nope. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us and the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace taught our hearts to fear, and grace, our fears relieved. Is that your testimony tonight? Hope it is. If it's not, there'll never be a better time than right now for you to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. For you to think about that long battle with sin. Are you still in it? Are you still in that struggle? Are you still in that quest for sanctification to live a Christ-like life? Do you feel that security because you have a no-so salvation? Grace, your fears has relieved. Let's stand together, please.